Justin Shears and welcome to Only a Northern Song. In this series, I'll be exploring the words and the music of the Beatles, but not through the usual tracks that we all know so well. I'll be delving into my extensive collection of outtakes, home recordings and demos, alternate mixes and interviews, to shed some new light on lesser known aspects of the Beatles' recorded legacy. Come on, come on, come on, it's such a joy, come on, it's such a joy. Come on, take it easy. Come on, take it easy. Take it easy. Take it easy. Everybody's got something to hide except for me and my monkey. Deeper you go, the higher you fly. Beatles had brought back a swag of new songs from their time in India and wasted no time in adding them to their recording plans for the new album. The lads had gathered at George's house in Isha to record a tape full of demos to capture the essence of each of the songs before heading into number two at Abbey Road Studios. Many of these songs became hallmark compositions for John, Paul and George, mainly for their simplicity but often for their beauty. 
one of the less complex of John's offerings turned out to be one of the rockier numbers on the finished album. From the evening session of the 26th of June 1968, a rehearsal take of Everybody's Got Something to Hide Except for Me and My Monkey. The Beatles had, by now, changed their approach to recording yet again. This time recording copious amounts of rehearsals, often numbered as takes, hoping that one would stand out from the rest to be then marked as best and treated to overdubs for completion. On this night, many rehearsals of the backing track were recorded, with a remark on the session recording sheet noting various takes best to be decided. While the lyrics of the song may not have been anything special, its ten-word title would famously become the longest in the entire Beatles canon. While the Beatles decided where to take the song next, another of John's compositions was brought into number two, although this time not for him to sing. The F-sharp minor sounded out of tune. Come on now. It's time you little toddlers were in bed. I'm having no more messing. You've been out to the park all day. You've had a lovely time. Now it's time for bed. Are we ready? 
Daddy will sing the song. Now it's time. It was me. Come along now. Put all those toys away. It's time to jump into bed and go off into dreamland. Yes, Daddy will sing a song for you. Are you ready? Now it's time to say good night. Now don't ask me why. Now the sun. Ah, hold it, hold it. Daddy, Daddy went a bit crazy. <laughs> Daddy. Rehearsal takes of John's Good Night from the 28th of June, 1968, featuring only John's guitar and Ringo's vocal at this stage. Written as a lullaby for his five-year-old son Julian, the song was a clear departure for John, straying into what was more traditionally Paul's territory. Uh, so John wrote it mainly. It's his tune, you know, uh, which is surprising for John because he doesn't normally write this kind of tune. Uh, it's a very sweet tune, and Ringo sings it great, I think. Good night, take ten. Now it's time to say good night. Take 10 of Good Night, recorded on the 2nd of July 1968. Takes 1 to 5 had been recorded four days earlier, with Take 5 marked as best. 
more guitars were overdubbed, including one acoustic guitar recorded at half speed, so as to sound an octave higher when the tape was played back at normal speed. Takes 6 to 15 featured vocal overdubs and charming harmonies from the other three Beatles, none of which would ever be used. With a clear picture of the final product in mind, George Martin took away a tape copy of Take 15 to write the string score, which would be recorded three weeks later. With two more of John's songs now added to the mix, it was time for Paul to add one of his to the list. One, two, three, four. Desmond has a barrel in the marketplace. Take four of Obladi Obladi, one of three versions of the song which will be attempted in the next couple of weeks. The basic track of Paul's acoustic guitar and Ringo's drums, recorded on the 3rd of July, would go to seven takes all up. Take seven was marked best and treated to overdubs of more acoustic guitar and a lead vocal. Upon closer listening though, it was decided that take four was actually better, 
so it was given fresh guitar and vocal overdubs too. The following day, John and George's backing Lars were overdubbed, and with the four tracks now full, a reduction mix, this time called Take 5, was made to a fresh tape, and a new lead vocal was added by Paul. Ringo's tambourine replaced the acoustic guitar recorded the day before. Interestingly, the origins of the song lay in a phrase that Paul heard around the clubs in Swinging London. We used to go to the clubs mm-hmm. late at night, drink, dance, maybe a little food. And there was a friend of mine who I befriended in the clubs. He was an African guy. He was called Jimmy Scott. And, you know, we would jive together just, hey, man, you know what's going on? Yeah. And he would say, oh, bloody, oh, bloody, life goes on, brah. <laughs> Yeah, man, yeah, yeah, man, you know, and I just love this. And I would go, oh, bloody Jimmy, you know. And he, he had a few other sayings. Nothing's too much, just out of sight. You know, so I loved all these little sayings. I like most kinds of music, so that I haven't got a, a bag, as they say, except the big black one in the hall outside. And that's, you know, this oh, bloody, oh, bloody, and USSR, and um, Martha, and that, like a, a three different songs all together. In fact, all of mine are on the LP, on the LP. but um, I can't really say anything about that. I'm just, I'm pretty diverse. Does I mean? I haven't got one sort of thing. So this, I've no, I've no idea why it's Jamaican or anything. Just because I like that kind of thing. Did you write the song on your own? Well, I mean, this is a combination of the Lennon-McCartney thing. I think it was mainly me, mainly me. John's a bit more Nigerian influence. <laughs> The third straight day of sessions for this song, the 5th of July, saw more overdubs applied, this time mainly from session musicians. Paul played the bass part on his acoustic guitar, George Martin conducted three saxophones, a xylophone, a piccolo, which was later wiped, and conga drums played by one Jimmy Scott, the man who had inspired the title in the first place. Desmond has a barrow in the marketplace Molly is the singer in a band Desmond says to Molly, girl, I like your face And Molly says this that she takes him by the hand Oh, bloody, oh, bloody, life goes on Oh, bloody, oh, bloody, life goes on, 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 life goes on,
rough mix of take five of Obladi Oblada as it sounded at the end of the 5th of July session, a copy of which was taken home by Paul. On the 8th of July, three quarters of the Beatles attended a press preview of the brand new Yellow Submarine film, which would have its world premiere in nine days' time. John chose not to attend. The Beatles were asked about the film, but also about the new album they were recording just in it has drawings and it, it's like us animated goes through it you know but did mystery tour put you off making a film completely yourselves yeah we're only ever going to be cartoons <laughs> forever because <laughs> they really put us off those, it's a new career piece no good damn critics the film makes <laughs> the cartoon makes a bit of fun of the maharishi does this mean that you've finished with him now he's well, not, not finished with you know but we're over that phase it was a bit of a phase but he's still a nice fella and everybody's fine, but we don't go out with him anymore. The only thing that's a pity about the film is that uh, we didn't manage to use our voices on it because we were working a lot and we, we didn't get it together. And we tried to do it later, but it's impossible because it's very difficult to do uh, the other way around. You can't put new voices on a film that's already made uh, it, with animation. It's a bit difficult with cartoon films to do that. But that's... It's still a great film. It was, it's a film about us, you know. So it's like saying uh, The Seven Dwarfs made Snow White by Walt Disney, but Walt Disney made it, really, not The Seven Dwarfs. George Harrison tells reporters of the new album they're recording. Oh, yeah, the songs we wrote, they're not Indian sort of things, but uh, they're just, you know, Beatle music. You know, all the songs we do, we just write them all the time, so, uh, you know, we just happen to have written some in India. Will it take as long as Sgt. Pepper, do you think, or is it impossible to say? Impossible to say. There's more songs than we had when we started Pepper. Paul, you were just in India. Uh, will you be recording any new songs uh, done there on a new album? We've just gone into the studios again and we're doing it now. Uh, the music, I think it will take a couple of months for, it to, for us to finish it. Even after all the work that had gone into the recording of Obladi Oblada thus far, after listening to it over the weekend, Paul was dissatisfied with the sound of the track. Convening in Studio 2 on the evening of the 8th of July, a remake of the song was begun. It got as far as take 13, and Paul took home another rough mix of the night's work. He wasn't happy with this second version either. The 9th of July saw two more takes of a third version of Oblidi Oblidar recorded, this time called takes 20 and 21. Yes, sir, that's my baby. However, it too was abandoned, and the Beatles reverted back to take 13 of the second version from the previous night. 
After several days and two remakes, the song was ready for more saxophones, played by the same session musicians from the first version and some other minor overdubs. The song was finally ready for mixing. Paul remembers how the song got its distinctive introduction. One thing I always love about the intro there, that piano dun, 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 intro. Dun, dun. So fast too, it's like... Well, what happened was me, George and Ringo were kind of slaving over this. Right. And John wasn't there yet. John, he was late. Yes. Again. Aha. Uh-huh. Well, he's busy. <laughs> hey, come on. God knows what. So we're not getting anywhere with it. Chinga, 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 chinga. It was thinking, oh God, this isn't, it's not happening. And John comes in to the studio. He says, what are you doing? What, what's happening? What are we what, working what, what on? What are we working on? I say, oh, bloody. He goes, oh, oh, that one. He goes over to the piano. He goes, all right, what can you do? He goes, dun, 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 dun. Just like that. And we all fall in behind him and go, yes.
The 9th of July also saw work begin on another of John's numbers, the third incarnation of a song which had already been committed to tape twice in these sessions. When George and Paul and all them were on holiday, I made Revolution, which is on the LP, and Revolution number nine. I wanted to put it out as a single, but they said it wasn't good enough. They came home, I had it all prepared, and they came back and said it wasn't good enough, and we put out what? Hello, goodbye, or some shit, I don't know. No, we put Hey Jude, sorry, which was worth it, but we could have, could have had both, you know. A rehearsal take of Revolution, the song which would end up as the B-side of the next worldwide Beatles single release. A decidedly more up-tempo rendition of Revolution 1, and completely different in every aspect to the sound collage of Armageddon that was Revolution 9, this recording again pushed the limits of EMI's equipment and its recording engineers. Jeff Emmerich explains. And I think I got into like the 11th track and John had been pretty nasty to me, making nasty remarks, which wasn't really, it was something that happened in his life at that time. And he took the anger out on me, I guess, right? So anyway, I, the only thing that came out of that, because we were doing Revolution number nine, which was that distorted guitar sound, right? So he said to me, he made a nasty remark to me, and, he, and I thought, right, he said, oh, I want this, this, a great guitar sound, and you know, you'll have to bloody well do it, right? So out of anger, what I, I did, I overloaded one mic amp, because they're tube mics in those desks, and came out of that mic amp, which was completely overloaded, went into another mic amp and overloaded that one, and then went to another mic amp and overloaded that one, 
and then ah. just lifted the fader up and said, is that what you bloody want, you know? <laughs> and of course it was that sound, which everyone loves, it was made out of my anger. <laughs> <laughs> Guitars, this time not played through amplifiers, but injected directly into the desk, drums and vocals were all overloaded through the recording console, giving the track its distinctive distortion. Commonplace since then, but pushing the boundaries for the Beatles in mid-1968. Had the EMI bigwigs found out about such shocking abuse of their equipment, there would have been some robust discussions had. Recording proper began the following night, the 10th of July, with 10 takes of the blistering backing track committed to tape, additional overdubs were added, bringing the total to two distorted guitars, two separate and very heavy drum tracks, and hand claps, with all tracks compressed and limited to increase their impact.
Take 14 of Revolution, an excitingly energetic track which was now ready for more overdubs. The following day, John added a lead vocal with a second track for incidental double tracking. Paul's bass would be added the very next day.
take 15 of Revolution. All that was needed now was some bluesy electric piano, courtesy of Nicky Hopkins, one of the most in-demand session musicians around at the time, and someone who would go on to work alongside John, George and Ringo on solo albums in the 1970s. John would also add his screaming intro to the song and another guitar track, rounding out what would become one of the Beatles' greatest B-sides. That's it for this episode. Next time, the Beatles push their boundaries even further in more White Album sessions. Until next time, 